Do you have a story to tell about a terrible medical conversation? I want to hear from you. Please email me at christine at christinemeyermd.com. I can't wait for you to tell me more. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Tell Me More. I'm your host, Dr. Christine Meyer. On the show, we break down some of the worst conversations in healthcare. Why? Because I believe that together we can build better ones. everybody. Welcome to this very special episode of Tell Me More. I have been just dying to have this conversation with my friend and colleague, Shelby Riley, licensed marriage and family therapist and owner of Shelby Riley LMFT and Associates. Honestly, I have to say these guys are among the best therapists that I have ever had the privilege to work with, both professionally and personally. In a word, they just get it. So what we're talking about is the very difficult conversations around mental health issues. And there are different parts of these conversations that I think we could all do better with. So one specific set of conversations are those that we primary care doctors have with our patients. Then there are those what tend to be much better conversations that therapists like Shelby have with their patients. And then there's conversations that we healthcare professionals have with each other about mental health issues. And honestly, I think there's room for improvement in at least two out of the three. And Shelby, I'm sure you're going to say that you haven't had perfect conversations every time too, but we'll get to that. First, welcome to the show. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Thank you. It's my pleasure. I'm very happy to be here. Great. So Well, let's start with me and my primary care practice, like not me directly, but me Mm -hmm. as a representative of primary care doctors. I do a lot of mental health in my practice. I mean, it's just the nature of how things are. Patients tend to start with their primary care doctor Mm -hmm. when they are not doing well. I love that they have a sense of comfort and trust to bring these issues to us. There's also, you know, a paucity of psychiatrists in the area. So it makes, you know, us the first stop by default. But we don't always have the time or the expertise to have these really good conversations. So, you know, if I see a patient who seems clinically depressed to me, we have our 20 to 30 minute talk, their depressive symptoms are impacting their life. I typically will look at their lifestyle. What can you change? Is there anything? Is there not? We talk a little bit about therapy. Is that in the cards for you? Some patients are very much for therapy. Some patients are just definitely against therapy. Mm -hmm. And then I'm embarrassed to say more times than not, I end up prescribing something. And I just feel like those conversations could go better. And maybe if they did go better, I would end up prescribing less medicine and patients would end up having better outcomes. So. In your experience with primary care doctors, tell me what you've experienced, good, bad, in between. So thankfully, I really feel like we work in a community where more times than not, we are hearing that people had great conversations with their primary care physicians. So I actually feel really lucky to work with clients who have primary care doctors that they feel really safe with, they feel really good about, and they feel really heard by. And so we do hear a lot of really positive feedback about the kind of conversations doctors like you are having with their patients. I think the other thing that I want to say is like, you are not supposed to be having these (laughs) kinds of amazing conversations and taking on the role of therapist as well as primary care physician. And so I think we all have to kind of recognize our scope of practice and the limitations that we have in terms of our training and our expertise. And so I applaud you and I love that you want to have better conversations, but also I think for any primary care physicians out there to feel like therapists are here to support the work that you do. And you guys are here to support the work that we do and that we do get to work as a team. And it's one of my favorite things actually is being able to have the ability to work as a team with other physicians and psychiatrists and sometimes even like clergy and, you know, like other professionals who are in patients' lives where we can all kind of surround them and know that we each have our role and we each have our expertise. So some of the things that I hear that go really well 
And it's one of the things I really appreciated about you and your practice very early on was really being able to say, I'm hearing that you're having some anxiety or some depression. You know, there are some options that we have, you know, there is medication available. Some people really do very, very well on medication. It's really, you shouldn't be embarrassed that you're prescribing. (laughs) It's really helpful sometimes. But I do think there are times where people maybe don't want to do medication. They're a little worried about medication or medication just feels like the only thing that they're going to be willing to do when there really are so many other pieces. And so coming at it from a systemic lens, I love hearing, you know, lifestyle. I've even had some clients, I can recall a few in particular that were like, oh, I was talking with my doctor and she recognized that I kind of keep bringing up my marriage and that the stress of my marriage, you know, and the the fighting and the conflict is really sort of contributing to me over drinking, which can be contributing to my stress level. You know, it's like, and so now my blood pressure is high and now this is, and I'm gaining weight. And so being able to look at a human systemically as a whole being. And it's one of the themes that I kind of keep hearing in this podcast, you know, as patients are talking about what do I need from my doctor for it to feel better? It's to see me as a whole person, right? Not just a heart or a lung or a, you know, blood pressure reading. And then I think that other piece is being able to look at a client, not just you know, physically and mentally as a whole being, but then being able to take in that context of Mm -hmm. their greater life, their greater system, you know, what's going on at work, what's going on at home. And I do hear our clients come in and say, my doctor asked about, you know, my marriage, my doctor asked about my work stress. And so those are great pieces to be including. Yay, win for us. Yes. And I, I'm so glad you said that because, you know, I, I definitely feel like there are areas in practice where I have tremendous amount of confidence and things that I think that I do really, really well. And then I have things in my practice where I'm like, oh, I am just not equipped for this conversation, like very specifically mental health situations in adolescents and young adults. Mm-hmm. So I can talk the tail off of a menopausal woman who's feeling anxious and depressed. Like I have that in the bag, like forget the office, let's go out and have a cup of coffee and we will just like hammer this out. But the context of, Mm -hmm. you know, a patient that is not in my, I don't know how to say it, like in my zone of life Mm -hmm. is really hard. So how about, have you had that experience? So Thank you for acknowledging the good that we do. But how about the times when we just like, oh, you should have left that to somebody else? (laughs) Yeah, it's one of the things that I love is I've heard some of our clients say, hey, I was prescribed this medication. And and particularly, honestly, from your practice, we do hear this a little more often than maybe some other places. But there are a few other larger practices that I can think of where they've started doing this, where it's like, I'm going to prescribe you this. But what I really like is for you to schedule an appointment with a therapist. You know, here are some options. Here are some therapists we trust because I want you to kind of be doing this follow-up work and not just relying on this medication. And so that in and of itself is great. I think to the kids and teenagers and young adult piece of things, a lot of people are really scared of them. I mean, and scared for them. And I think your hesitation in terms of not feeling really confident there is so normal. I do think we're one of the few practices, mental health practices, where we kind of work with all parts of the family. We have clients as young as four. And I always sort of jokingly say, and as old as 104, but really (laughs) like 84. But that really having that comfort with all parts of a family and all sort of ages and stages of life is really, really rare. And it's something we pride ourselves on that we really do sort of know how to talk to people because it's different how you talk to a kid versus how you talk to a teenager. And so I think some of the stuff that I've heard, because teenagers and and young adults, you know, who are not quite fully formed yet are still, you know, their brain is developing in such a way that they still are very like sort of self-focused and everything comes through this filter of, am I being judged? They don't necessarily have that larger perspective where they can kind of take in a lot of information and filter it in a way that really helps. And so a couple that I hear about, you know, one is that phrase that I'm sure you're familiar with of like, there's nothing wrong with you. It's all in your head. God, it really feels just so dismissive and like so painful for them because I mean, literally physically they're having symptoms. Like if you are anxious or depressed, 
you are in pain, your heart is racing, you know, you've got like, people will talk about like sort of their veins feel like they're sizzling beneath their skin. You know, it's like, there are true physical symptoms that they're experiencing. And so to be told it's all in their head, they really are like, am I making this up? Like, am I, you know, is this really me doing this to myself? And it's like, no, absolutely not. What doctors mean is, you know, that I think this is a mental health issue. And I think there are ways that you can approach this in how you think about yourself and how you think about your circumstances that can actually really help you feel better because there's nothing physically wrong with your heart. And so some of the things, you know, I will sometimes say in session is like, oh, this is what I think your doctor meant to say, you know, and and really kind of reword it and say, you're having symptoms of anxiety or you're having symptoms of depression. And like, I will name a few out so that it's just really clear, you know, like you're having a, a racing heart, you're having heat that flashes up into your face. And then your thoughts are racing so fast that it sort of feels like your mind is going blank and numb. And so those are symptoms of anxiety. Those are things we can take care of. You know, it's pretty normal to feel anxious these days, but you do not have to continue feeling this way. And so let's talk about what are some of the things that we can do to address this. And then there is like, what are they thinking? You know, like, how can they respond to these thoughts? Then there is the lifestyle, you know, are they exercising? Are they eating right? Are they drinking too much caffeine? You know, that is their family situation really tense? Do we need to kind of set some different boundaries within the home or relationships? And so I think sometimes using that language that says like, I see you, this is real, but good news. Like there's nothing wrong cardiovascularly, you know, right? There's nothing wrong with your heart. There's nothing wrong with, you know, your blood pressure. It's rising when you get stressed. But when we take these readings over time, you're actually, you know, physically really healthy. And so I'd like you to take a look at these things in a different way. The other thing we hear about is weight. Like for young people, and I really, I mean, I don't know about you, but it's like for women of all ages, but like particularly for teens and for young adults, men and women, you know, both weight can be a really sensitive subject. And I have heard quite a bit of, you know, people being told, well, you know, if you just lose weight, you know, you'd be healthier in all these other areas, which feels really what we hear a lot about is like, it feels so judgmental. They feel Mm. so attacked. Mm -hmm. And it feels, again, like they're being reduced to sort of a societal norm. Like it's about being and looking thin as opposed to let's talk about if they're carrying extra weight, what that's actually medically doing to them. And so I will sometimes try to like correct those conversations too, to go, I don't care what you look like. You are beautiful. I don't care how much you weigh or, you know, like how many inches around or what size you wear. What I care about is, are you taking good care of yourself? Is your body able to function in the way that it's built to function? Are there any pieces of your lifestyle or your weight that are getting in the way of your body being able to feel its best and function its best? Hmm. Which, I mean, I'm sure still is very irritating to them in in certain ways, but feels like a sort of a different, more respectful approach and helps to kind of create some space for some of that body image, eating disorder kind of conversations that we get to have. So I love that you brought up the weight conversations and specifically how that impacts patients' mental health, because that's something I see many, many times a day. Someone who is generally dissatisfied with their weight, wanting to make a change, not sure what to do. But there's this other thing that happens, at least for me, and I'm sure I'm not alone in this as a primary care doctor, but sometimes I find myself shying away completely from the weight conversation. Mm -hmm. So I'll see a patient, they're there for their well visit. They're, you know, once a year, we're going to do your physical, look over everything, make sure your health is optimized. And I go soup to nuts, you know, blood pressure, eyes, ears, nose, throat, all the way down, review all the labs, like all the preventative stuff, like extremely thorough. You know, that's one of the things I pride myself on. Like I Mm -hmm. don't skip cut corners ever, right? But sometimes literally the only thing that a patient should be worried about is their weight. Like, yes, their blood pressure is perfect. All their vitals are great. Their stats are perfect. And I find myself saying like, so let's talk about your weight or do you sometimes think about your weight or 
the only thing I see as a problem is maybe your weight. And I feel like that's so wishy-washy, but it's almost the opposite of what you're saying, where people are just like in your face, it's your weight. So what's your approach to that, to that just general hesitancy to even talk about it? Here's my first dumb question, because this is the whole like, I am not a physician. Is there any reason to talk about it? Like if their labs are great, if everything looks great, I mean, if they're like really healthy, my first question is like, why would they need to lose weight? Well, you know, a little bit, yes, there's truth to that. But really, obesity outside of the things that we can measure has been linked to so many things, you know, like risk for diabetes and risk for certain types of cancer. And we're talking about more like lifelong risk as opposed Mm -hmm. to in this moment, you know, your weight is causing this or that. Those conversations, honestly, are a lot easier because then I could say, oh, your blood sugar is high. Like you need to lose some weight or your blood pressure is high. You need to lose some weight. It's more like, Listen, you're 35 years old, and I'm telling you right now, and if this doesn't change in 15 years, you have a 90% chance of developing X, Y, or Z problem. So, and as a, as primary care doctors, you know, we're seeing people often very longitudinally. So yeah, I'm seeing them today in this moment where it might not be that important. You feel great. You're a dancer. You're doing mm-hmm. everything. Your numbers are awesome. But I'm also going to be seeing you 10 years from now. And if I have, if I don't have this conversation now, I've missed the opportunity to help the future you. But there's got to be from a psychological standpoint, there have to be good and bad ways to have that conversation. Yes. And really the way you just said it to me is beautiful because it really, it's about human to human, right? That like when people just look and go, you know, well, you need to lose weight. Like that's obviously an issue. I just think it feels so painful. But like what you just said is, look, I know you and I'm going to know you for a really long time. And as your doctor, I'm thrilled to see, you know, that these labs look great. Like this, you're so healthy. And I know you're active. You know, I know you reported that you kayak and you dance. And so I think you're doing what you need to do in order to be healthy right now. My concern is, is that long term, what the research shows is that, you know, being overweight does contribute to your increased risk of diabetes and, you know, heart disease, all these kinds of things and saying, I would feel remiss as your doctor not bringing this up. And so I just kind of want to check in and see, you know, like, how do you feel about it? Where are you at with it? And so if you make it less, like more about, I care about you. Mm. And I just like, it's my role to bring this up. And I just want to check in and see how you feel about this. Because then they can either go, I know, I'm really worried too. I've been trying everything. What do I do? Or they go, look, I don't want to talk about it. My weight has nothing to do with it. I'm, you know, fit as a fiddle right now. I'm fine. (laughs) And then you get to go, okay, you know, but I I sometimes do say this in therapy sessions because I have to give people some really difficult feedback about certain things that they're doing, certain things that they're engaged in, certain things that I know are just completely dysfunctional and are going to super backfire at some point. And I do look at them and I go, I say this from a place of love. And I just want to to be clear that you have hired me. You are here because you want me to tell you the things that I'm seeing. And so I'm just going to kind of lay this out. Right. And so it's in that same vein, I think, where it's like from a place of love and as my role as your primary care physician, I would be remiss to not just highlight the fact that what we know is over time, blah, blah, blah. You know, what do you think about that? Have you been thinking about that? And then you can take your cues from them, right? That like, if they want more about it, you get to talk more about it. If they shut you down, you just go, you know, okay, I can tell it's a sore subject. Just know that like, I love you and I want the best for you. And that's why I bring it up because like they do need to hear, right? If there's information you have, that's why they're with you. Right. That's awesome. I love that. Yeah. So I think you just helped me create a script for a very specific scenario. And you may have heard, I'm sure you've heard this, where this other terrible thing happens where a patient has a litany of symptoms, mm. you know, joint pain, back pain, depression, they're sleeping badly, like all of these things. And they'll go to their doctor, sometimes their primary, sometimes a specialist. And the answer they get is all of your problems would go away if you lost weight or your problem is your weight. 
and they kind of assign everything to that bucket. So we, we have these tremendous extremes where we're like, let's not talk about it at all. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about it in the context of really you're fine, but you might not be or everything's terrible and it's terrible because you're weight. And I think we just have to get better at the context of that weight and maybe not either extreme, not being very quick to blame everything on it and not being so, you know, timid about broaching the subject. You mentioned something about having to give people very difficult feedback. I want to hear about that. Tell me about one of the hardest things you've had to tell a client that you desperately needed to, but you personally as a professional struggled with? Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because there's the individual feedback, you know, and sometimes that is, and if we take it from like a a primary care physician sort of setting kind of situation, I think about a client that I had years and years ago and he was really depressed And so there are all these pieces that we're looking at. And then it's like, really, when we boil down to it, not prioritizing sleep, right? Staying up, like looking at videos until, because he's kind of insomnia and stuff. And then he's eating McDonald's every day and drinking this. It's like all of these lifestyle things where I was like, oh, geez, you know, like if you will take care of these pieces, it's not going to make your depression go away, but it's going to give your body a much better fighting chance of actually taking in some of these other things that we're doing that are going to help you feel better. And so I, I do sometimes feel like, you know, when you're, you're gentle and you're exploring and you're kind of trying to, I love it when clients are the ones who figure out like, oh, I need to stop doing this. You know, it's like, yes, I support that. But that to really have to look at somebody and go, if you continue to do this, it's going to be really, really hard for you to feel better. And it's honestly going to even be hard for that medication that you're prescribed to work properly because right. like, it just feels like you are hurting your body on a daily basis. And what we want to do is give your body a fighting chance. But then sometimes it's in the context of more of like family relationship stuff where there's, you know, if we're working with a couple or we're working with a whole family and it's, I can't think of anything suit. Well, now I do, of course, think of something super specific, you know, where it's like having somebody who was really just incredibly abusive, like verbally abusive and belittling in a couple situation and really having it's, it's really not fun to cut people off and like stick your hand up and go, whoa, 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 I'm going to stop you again, right there. The language that you're using is abusive. And I really kind of hate using that word. I feel like it's really triggering for people. I feel like it really makes people feel really defensive. But sometimes again, when you've sort of gone through the ladder of, I'm going to point this out, I'm going to shape it and show it to you in a different way. I'm going to try to help you to see what's going on. And the way that you're treating your partner is so toxic and dismissive and abusive, but that you get to a point where you have to use sometimes those words. And I will say, I'm going to use these words on purpose because I want you to understand how important it is, what you're doing and the impact it's having on your relationship and on your partner. And like, can you stop and look at them and see the way that they're like hunched over and like, you know, their face is down because they have learned to just shut down and shell up to protect themselves from what's coming at them. And, and sometimes that gets through and it really can make a big difference if you can build up that relationship and they trust you and they see that you've tried to do it in a variety of ways before you're going straight to the confrontation. And so I think that's important is like the relationship that we as health professionals have with our patients and our clients, it buys us currency, right? I mean, like it buys us the ability to have these tougher conversations. And so that time and that respect and that relationship is what gives me permission sometimes to really confront people. But sometimes they don't hear it. And sometimes <laughs> they are not having it. And what I find really beneficial in that situation is, does the partner need to see? Like yes. the information that I'm giving, the fact that this person can't receive it, even from a trained professional, you know, mm-hmm. it's like that, that there's still value in those moments because the partner is witnessing, you know, what's going on and is getting the information that what's happening isn't okay. But those are some of the tougher conversations where you literally have to cut people off and be like, absolutely not. That's not happening in here. And Mm -hmm. this is what you're doing because it does feel really 
aggressive sometimes to have to talk to somebody in a way when they've been so aggressive. You know, it's it can feel a little a, a little tense and uncomfortable. So, have you ever felt physically unsafe mm-hmm. in a room with a client? Yep. Tell me about yep. that. Yeah. So not lately, which is really, really nice. Like I honestly, the one I think about is, is at least 15 years ago in private practice. And it was a man who was really angry. And we have people with anger issues, men and women, both with anger issues that we deal with. And it tends to feel pretty good. And I pride myself on being able to tolerate a pretty high level of conflict. And yes, you um, can. (laughs) It's fine. But this man did get up, stand up. I was sitting, his partner was there and he stood over me and screamed at me. And it felt really intimidating because he chose to stand, he chose to scream in my face, you know, and he was saying some really not very nice things because he didn't like the feedback that I was giving. And so that did feel really unsafe. And do you have like a a secret push the button kind of thing under your desk? What do you, what do you do? How did you get out of that? What did you do? Yeah. So like, again, we're trained to de-escalate situations like that and to, you know, not take it personally, to see it for the reaction that he's having and his own issues. And, and so then I just sort of, you know, de-escalated him, got him to calm down, wrapped up the session. And then I did, you know, call them like two days later and just say, Hey, given this, you know, scenario, I want to talk about us moving forward. Like, I'm happy to continue working with you, but we do need to have some ground rules about like what's okay in that room. And if it happens again, then obviously, you know, I will probably be referring you for anger management so that you can kind of get some skills into place before we come back in and do this again. And so, yeah, like, and there are those, there, there are a few where, you know, it's like you just do, you get a vibe off of somebody. And like, so I'm pretty careful. Our team is all women. I'm pretty careful about tightly controlling our schedule so that we don't see like any, you know, new people with sort of like, you know, extreme violence or anything in their background, like late at night when there's only one or two people in the building. Like, so we try to be thoughtful about like Mm. how we're screening people and, you know, how we're scheduling so that there is safety there. So, you know what? I, I love how these conversations tend to unfold because there's no script, right? Like we just kind of talk and see what happens, but it brings up this really important issue about healthcare professionals safety. And just like what I think the general public might not realize is there are times when we are genuinely under fire and it's Mm -hmm. scary. I know for me, one of the scariest patient interactions I had was a conversation about narcotics. And a patient I've known for a very long time, appropriately taking narcotics. But honestly, the minute I started to say, hey, things are going a lot better. I think we need to start to talk about weaning your medication. It was almost like a switch. Mm -hmm. And he was so angry. I remember just thinking to myself, I have nothing. I have nothing. This door is shut behind me. He outweighs me by a hundred pounds. Like, what am I going to do? Now, you are much more gracious than I because I can't even remember how that ended. But like within seconds, I was writing him a certified letter like, you're out. I am not going to be your doctor anymore. I just can't. Do you ever have that? Do you ever have like a conversation, even if it's not about safety with a patient or a client and just say like, nope, this is not going to work out. I'm not even going to try. Can you give me an example of that? Yeah. So for us, I mean, again, I will just couch this by saying we are so, so lucky to work in a community where like, we really love our clients. You know, it's like, I I tell people, I'm like, I would be friends with half of my caseload. They're just (laughs) lovely human beings who are going through really tough times. And sadly, I can't be friends with them because we have ethical guidelines and boundaries and all. I know. I hate your ethical guidelines, by the way, but separate topic. (laughs) I know. But like, it really, I feel so lucky that like, no, we are not barraged with really difficult situations or scenarios or, but occasionally, and one one particular instance comes to mind where it's it's really a level of care issue. We are an outpatient therapy practice. So we see people, you know, weekly, sometimes every other week, then hopefully when they're feeling better down to once a month, you know, and like if if things pop, like sometimes with our teenagers, 
who are going through a little more suicidal ideation stuff. We might see them twice a week for a period of time to make sure we've got a good eye on them. But it is not, you know, like a high level. I always say like, we aim for excellence in terms of our quality of care. But in terms of high level of care. Like we're not a day treatment program. We can't be available 24-7, you know, it's like, and so we have had a few clients with some severe mental health issues, you know, paranoia, delusional thinking, and we were just not the right setting for them. And typically if we do get a referral and we can kind of suss that out, we refer them to an IOP or an inpatient program and it works out just fine. But I have had two clients who got fairly fixated on our practice and really, really, really wanted to be seen by our practice. And you knew that they were quite delusional, quite activated, were were not a good setting for them. And so then it's really, really hard to explain to somebody who doesn't, isn't aware that they are paranoid and delusional and experiencing psychosis, that this is the wrong level of care for them because they don't think that they need that high level of care. They, you know, kind of know what's going on in their world. And so those are really pretty difficult to have. And that helps actually to kind of get a family member involved. If there's a parent or a partner or a sibling, like for adults, you know, like that they really trust to, you know, have them in on the phone call or like if we have seen them in the office and then sort of at that point assessed like, oh, we are not the right level of care to help them understand why we're referring them out. We do try to get a family member involved who can kind of help make that process a little bit more fluid because I really don't, I never want somebody feeling like we just booted them, you know, not you because people are in pain and they're in distress. And we want to make sure that even if we're not the right providers for them, that we're helping them get to the right providers if we can. Love it. So, all right. So the next thing I want to ask you about is, well, I'm going to tell you mine and then I want you to tell me yours. So (laughs) this is, this is what I think one of the absolute worst conversations I've had in my practice with a patient. And it was a young adult, 18 year old girl going to college. And the conversation was her, her mom and I about Gardasil, the HPV vaccine, which she had not had, which is recommended for all kids because we know that certain types of HPV lead to cervical cancer. And so this vaccine has, you know, dramatically reduced the risk of HPV and therefore cervical cancer in young people. So, so I always recommend it to the right patients. And this girl was, had not had it and was about to go to college. And, you know, I ask about sexual activity, you know, probably starting at 16, which is the youngest age I see, but sometimes like it's awkward, like if the mom is there or whatever. So I try to dance around it. And I also try to bring humor into it, which is, you know, in this case was a very bad thing to do. So I was talking about this vaccine and the mom said, well, why does she really need it? And I'm like, well, you know, you definitely want to have this vaccine before your first exposure or potential exposure to HPV. And she's like, well, how do you get exposed to HPV? I'm like, glad you asked. It's basically a sexually transmitted disease. And and unless you're going to a convent, you definitely are going to at some point need this vaccine. And that patient looked at her mom and they both looked at me and they're like, she is going to the convent. And I was like, oh (laughs) my God. It was, I was mortified. And, you know, to be fair to me, like in all these years of practice, that was perhaps the very first soon to be none I had ever met, but it was horrible. And this poor girl, I'll never forget her. She was, she was beautiful, red hair, fair skin. And she was just like, fire. Like her whole face was just on fire. And man, I will take that to my grave. And really, I will never use that again, no matter how unlikely that is. But so tell me about an experience you may have had where you cringe thinking about something you said to a patient. Yeah, it's funny, because the longer I'm in practice, the less those things happen, you know, because even when they do happen, like I say things and I see it immediately on my client's face. Yeah. You're like, Oh, 
But what I love about my job, and I always tell this to people, is that we do have the time and the relationship for repair. That like, I would be a terrible like neurosurgeon because I just feel like (laughs) you messed up. I'm sorry, Christine, you have messed up. You know, that is bad. Yeah. If we mess up, it's actually like rich with good work because we get to model repair and we then we get to talk about what that was like. And and if you're a really good therapist who knows how to be humble and to process and say, oh, I'm going to use this to benefit the client as opposed to like, oh, no, I need to feel okay. I need to feel like they like me. Well, then we're showing how to do good repair. And then you're saying like, they get to come back and you get to go, how was that? And then they get to go, yeah, it wasn't nearly as bad as I thought because you owned it. You And then you're like, Right. That's what apology, like that's what accountability looks like. It really does get to be this like growing moment for the relationship. And then also for them to see that it's not nearly so scary to mess up and apologize because relationships are inherently repairable. A lot of what we dig ourselves into is this idea that like, if I messed up, then I need to protect myself and I need to like dig a hole and then I need to keep going. Get more offensive. Yes. And so it's like, it really hurts your relationships, but it also hurts your mental health because there is that whole like, oh no, I didn't get up today. I don't feel my best. I'm a loser. Like if you have that grace in that space for going like, okay, like I didn't handle that the best. Most people don't handle everything the best. It gives you this space to kind of move through life in a really different way. But I do, my husband and I still, I opened a private practice in San Diego back in 2003 So I was subleasing from a psychologist and she was like giving me some clients and she didn't work with kids and I did. And so it was like this sweet Christian family. And I think the kids were being fostered by some relatives because some tough things had gone down with their parents. And so I'm like doing this little intro and like the foster relatives were kind of annoyed that they had to be in the session with these children. But like, that's how I work is that, of course, the first few sessions, you're going to be in here. These kids don't know me. That's just going to like walk in and like, trust me. Like we have to build this trust and we have to kind of set the boundaries and the scope of everything. And so in doing this, I also decide for some reason to say like, this is a safe place. There aren't like the same rules here that there are in school or whatever. And, you know, like if you want to cuss, that's fine. Why? Why, Christine? Why did I think this is an example? <laughs> I don't know. Whatever. So like then I go through and then, you know, they leave. And then the psychologist like two days later calls me and she was like, they fired you. You have embarrassed oh. me. Like, and the words that she used were like, like, oh, because Tom and I do this all the time when we're like, you screwed up, you know, like, like said that to me over the phone. And I was like, oh my gosh, I'm so embarrassed. And it is like, why? Did I say that? Like I could have really set the stage a little differently if I had really been thinking about their values and who they were, you know, and what they were hoping and to get. Cussing in. was not okay. Yes. Oh, oh my no. God. Yeah. So that does kind of still haunt me a little bit, even like 20 odd years later. So yes. Well, so but you know what? I love how you frame that. Like we are human beings doing this work and we are gonna get it wrong many, many times, more times than we would like. And I I think I've had an episode about this, but we've got to get better about apologizing, mm-hmm. you know, as healthcare providers, like whether it's right in that moment or later, I have taken to carrying around a packet of my little note cards. And the minute it occurs to me, I handwrite a note to a patient. And most often what drives the need for a handwritten personal note from me is something that went wrong. You know, Mm -hmm. something I said, something I did, something I missed, you know, but that serves two purposes. One, I've never had a patient get an apology from me and say like, I'm glad you're sorry, but too bad. You know, you're out as my Mm -hmm. doctor. They have been so gracious and so forgiving. And two, it is so liberating for me, like that that negative self-talk that you were talking about, like, writing that note almost ends. I'm like, okay, I did it. I sealed that envelope and it's out. I have to move on and just try not to make that same mistake again. Now, before the show, you started telling me about a bad conversation that maybe you had with a co-colleague, I would say, because I'm thinking about that. I'm like, I don't think I've ever had 
another doctor apologize to me for being a jerk. And I've had plenty of doctors be jerks to me. So tell me about your experience with another healthcare provider that you think was like, oh, that was horrible. Yeah. Yeah. It's really, again, I just feel so lucky that like normally, like we have really good relationships with several psychiatrists that we refer to or like inner refer. We get to have these like when the clients give permission for us to consult, we get to have these really wonderful conversations where like they know stuff we don't know. We know stuff they don't know. And it really helps to inform the care. And I know I've done that with primary care physicians, even in your practice around certain shared patients where we really get to work as a team. And there was a psychiatrist. Thankfully, he is no longer in practice. I will not name him, but like (laughs) quite a few actually of my clients had worked with this person. And um, I called him to consult about a kid case and he went off about how children can't benefit from therapy. It is a complete waste of time. Oh my God. All children, you know, can benefit from his medication and especially play therapy, which is like what you do with children. <laughs> like four to 10, you know, it's like they don't process information the same way as adults. And he went off about what a waste of time and money play therapy was and what a joke. And I'm like, this is like the bulk of my career, sir. This like, is what my life's work is. Yes. Oh and like the, the fact that you have seen like, A, of course, there's research. We know this is really beneficial. But B, you have seen years and years and years of clients heal from trauma or like learn like little seven-year-olds. Actually, I think of like a little four-year-old who got kicked out of preschool because of like anger and aggression and tantrums. And to watch his transformation over time through play therapy. It's just, it's amazing. And to have this man just like, just degrade like me and my career and what we do, it was so insulting. And he was the kind of person that like, I tried to be graceful and I was like, well, you know, it sounds like you know we have differences of opinion, which it just got to the point where he kept going on. I was like, I don't even know what to say anymore. And so it was just like, okay, then bye-bye. Like, there's, wow. I don't even want to consult oh with you. I, there's no getting through to you about anything. It was really awful. Oh. And it is that thing where you're like, oh, like now every time somebody says that they're working with him, I just have such a bad feeling for them about the kind of care that they're giving. Because if he's that close-minded and that hyper sure of himself about something he knows nothing about, like, what are you doing? You know, like in the other areas of your practice. And it was awful. So you are a consummate professional and you are so gracious. <laughs> I would, I would love to know, like, so if a patient that was seeing him, you're seeing them and you're like, this would go so much better if they had a different psychiatrist. Would you say that? Yes, absolutely. I would. I And I have said to clients like, Hey, you know, if you're having a good experience with that person and you feel like they're on top of your care, that is wonderful. And please stay with them. I have gotten some feedback and I've had some of my own experiences where I'm not sure I completely trust, you know, the kind of level of care that they're giving. And so if you ever, you know, want a referral, let me know. Because I do think, again, that's part of our like really uncomfortable, weird role, you know, is to like, guide people without saying, oh, well, I have a personal vendetta against this man and I don't want to be working with him anymore. You know, it's like, no, it just really is about like, oh, I don't really have a lot of respect or trust in the care that he's giving. Right. Because ultimately you're in this role in this person's life to help them get better. Yeah. And they don't know, they're looking mm-hmm. to us for guidance. And if we're like, we know deep down they're in getting bad care, I think it's it's almost negligent to not yes. mm-hmm. recommend a change. All right. So I want to end on a very positive conversation. I was going to say like, I'll tell you mine and you tell me yours. But as you were talking, I'm like, I don't have one. I don't have that I can think of. I mean, I do have menopause brain or whatever, but I don't have a mental health conversation that I've had with a patient that I carry around like I did good work by this patient. I mean, I've had situations like that with patients like other things. I caught his heart disease or I caught his prostate cancer. And those are wins for me. I'm good with that. But in the mental health arena, maybe not so much. So, But you certainly have. And you mentioned the little four-year-old. 
Do you have a story like that where you think your work, your conversations with a patient ended up being so good that their lives were truly transformed? This is like the really, really cool thing I think about our job is that we do spend more time with people than you get to. And one of the therapists on my team is actually a former primary care physician. I Allison, saw that. Alison yeah. yeah. Hopper. Yeah. Alison Hopper's been with me for 12 years. She worked in Planned Parenthood before, you know, as a doctor, she's a DO. And she just really wanted more time. She loved her patients. And it was really frustrating to her that she couldn't have more time with them. And so to have the sort of luxury of these 50-minute appointments, like an hour every week to really be with people in their healing and in their health is kind of amazing. And so being here for so long, I do get to work with people over the years. They come in, they come out. Like I don't work with somebody weekly for 10 years straight. I don't think that's really very helpful, but I've certainly worked with some people going on 15 years now, like through a divorce and then they're gone for a few years. And then, you know, maybe they're going to adopt a child and they want to kind of talk about their fears about that. And then they're gone for a while. And then maybe they do hit a period of anxiety or something. So before I tell my story, let me just say this, that like you do have so many stories because we get to hear them. Like Aww. that's the thing is I think you guys don't get the benefit of, you know, people coming back the next week and being like, Christine, thank you so much. Like the referral that you gave me or the way that you talked to me about that made me brave enough to call for a therapist. But we on the receiving end of those referrals do get to hear these stories. And so you guys have a ton of wins. I think you do this so much better than you give yourselves credit for. Aww, thank um, you for saying that. Yeah, absolutely. But I did just have a client recently. She had a parent pass away. There's a lot of stress. There's there's some multiple losses in, in a few different ways. She had a really, really rough episode a couple of weeks back. And so we had a couple of appointments around that. We've been talking a lot about like how she can take care of herself and what grief is and how you can plan and you can prepare, but you cannot like beat it. You're you're not going to ever not feel like it has just slapped you off track for a while. And at the end of our... So she's doing much better. She's put some of the things we talked about into place. It's really, really lovely to see. And she's somebody that I have worked with like at least over the course of like 13 years off and on. And so she, I said to her at the end of our session, like, wow, it feels like you really know how to get yourself back on track and that you're in such a different place now. And that like, you know, you're going to get slapped off track again and that you know what to do. You know, the people to call, you know, the people to lean on. And also, you know, the things that work to help you kind of soothe yourself and comfort yourself. And then kind of get yourself back moving, you know, in daily life. And she just broke out into tears. And she was like, she's like, I know. And I think about this all the time because you like years and years and years ago, you said to me, you know, that like, here's, you know, here's what I can do and blah, blah. And I am always here for you. And that knowing that you are always somebody that I can depend on, because you can't always depend on your friends. Maybe they're on vacation or you're like that. That has meant the world to me. And it's something I go back around to. And of course, I'm like, I'm not like, oh, I remember that exact specific conversation <laughs> from you know, eight years ago or whatever it was. But it's just like, it's that sense of being in people's lives in a way that is consistent, in a way that is safe. <clears throat> We're not always available. We have healthy boundaries. Like there are some times where clients have to wait three weeks to get in because of, you know, scheduling stuff or whatever. But that prioritizing and being in relationship with them in a way that it's not just about checking off like, okay, tell me your symptoms, check, 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 you know, or it's not just about like, tell me about your medication. Let's go through that, that we get to kind of explore all parts of their lives that they want us to explore with them. That makes such a difference because then they feel really safe and really held. And the words, I, I will tell you, it's like, very rarely is it the like interventions that we think are so, you know, brilliant and clinically astute and it's the relationship. It's that, it's that care. It is really being able to have people feel seen and heard. And I do think that that's something that primary care physicians are up against in the number of minutes that you get to have with somebody. How do you go through a full body check? You know, how do you check off all of these symptoms? How do you do all of that? 
and still create this sense that you really are there with them and you care about them. And, and I do think, honestly, what we hear a lot is a lot of the practices around our area are doing a pretty phenomenal job at making sure that people feel held and seen and cared for. You can't do it for everybody and everybody needs a little different. But I think that's the basis of what we're talking about is, yes, sometimes the script is actually really helpful. I give scripts out all the time to like, (laughs) here's how I want you to say this apology to your partner. Like, here's how I want you to talk to your child about their private parts. Like scripts, words help. But it's really about that. Like, can I care? Can I show up every single time and care, which makes a huge difference for people. I love that. And honestly, we're, that's why we do what we do. I mean, I think Mm -hmm. in primary care these days, if you don't care about your patients, you're absolutely in the wrong profession. There's really no other way to say it. And so what I'm going to take from this conversation is one, we're probably doing better than we think in the mental health conversations. (laughs) Two, it might not be as important you know, in terms of like the words we say, but more the feeling we give, you know, like when you say, Mm -hmm. I'm always here for you, you said, well, I'm not physically always here for you, Mm -hmm. you know, but I am in your corner. I'm going to advocate for you. We are going to do this together. Mm -hmm. I mean, that feeling that we give to patients almost is more important than the words we say in the conversation. And Obviously, there are huge wins, but I think when there are, you know, faux pas, trips, I think owning them, apologizing for them, and then just moving on is probably Mm -hmm. like, whether it's in a mental health conversation Mm -hmm. or any medical conversation, it's probably the best thing we could do. So if you were going to leave our two-part question, if you were going to leave our patients listening with advice about how to navigate a hard mental health conversation, how to broach a subject maybe with their primary care doctor, how should they do that? And part two, to our physicians and medical professionals listening, if we are approached by that patient with a mental health problem and we feel out of our depth, what's the best way to have that conversation? So it's loaded, I know, but you can handle it. I know it. It's great. Honestly, it it really is. It's one of the things that we send our clients back to their primary care physicians with cheat sheets, because I think it's really hard to have these conversations. And like you get a little like people get doctor anxiety anyway, like the blood pressure cuff thing, right? And they're like, mind goes numb. And, And so I think what I would recommend to patients is if you're working with a therapist already, talk with your therapist about what are the symptoms that you're still experiencing? What are the side effects from the medication that you're worried about? You know, how diligent have you been about taking your medication, you know, in a, in a really consistent manner? And what are the concerns that you have? And do you have ideas about other things that you would like them to focus on? Because if you can outline that and like work with your therapist it gives you a lot more information. It helps the doctor actually be able to do their job so much better and helps them be, if my mom, you know, took this particular medication, maybe that's a good first choice for me. Having notes about like, if they wanted to do the genetic testing to see what medication might work best for them. So it's to have this cheat sheet that you've worked out with your therapist, because sometimes too, Clients don't always like know the right words. You know, the like they do say things like, I get this zizzy feeling underneath my skin, you know, and it's like, all right, you know, like what is that exactly? So that a doctor isn't like a zizzy feeling. Hmm. You know, it's like, I think those are the times where like doctors have a tendency to be like, okay, don't worry about that. Like, let's talk about these things that actually are like heart palpitations. And so that's one of the things that I, encourage and sort of train my team in is like, when you're consulting with physicians, can you please try to use their vocabulary? Can you please try to speak their language so that they understand like what we're working on and what we're doing? Because if you're over here, like psycho babbling the conversation, there's just a huge disconnect. And so I think for clients, and then even if you're not working with a therapist to sort of do that for yourself, to really kind of think about what are the symptoms? What are my concerns? What medications have I tried? What's my experience been? 
What am I worried? Like, am I worried that my constant anxiety is flooding my body with adrenaline so much that I am going to actually physically have a heart attack? Is this bad for me? So that they can ask the kind of questions and get the kind of care that that they're seeking. Sometimes people come in and they just, they want to say like, I have anxiety. And then they want you to like read their mind and do all the stuff. Yes. If they can come in ready to give you the information they want you to have, that would be great. And then I think with doctors, what I would recommend is really just being very honest and being able to say, you know, I am not a trained mental health professional. I feel really comfortable prescribing for uncomplicated anxiety and depression. So let's talk a little bit about your symptoms and the medications you've tried and all that kind of history stuff. But then when it gets out of your depth, being able to go, I wish that I had more training and expertise here, but I don't. I am not a mental health professional, right? I'm a primary care physician, but thankfully I know some really great mental health professionals. And what I'd like you to do is make an appointment, you know, just as you know, you would, if I said, Oh, actually there's something with your heart and I want you to go see this cardiologist. I want you to make an appointment and just have a conversation with a mental health professional so that you can learn a little bit about what's going on and what your options are for treatment. And then if people are like, no, no, talk therapy's not for me, you know, to really be able to go, that's all fine. But I would really love it if you would just make one or two appointments and just let them know you want some education. You don't want to talk about your family. You don't want to go into the depths of your childhood, you know, like any of that, but that you want to get some options for some things that you can do to better manage your anxiety because you don't have to continue feeling this way. And then if they're like, no, 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 all I want to do is through you, then what you get to say is, okay, but please know I am not a trained mental health professional. Because I think we we do that. Like when people are like sort of talking about like gut stuff, you know, like <laughs> microbiome and how it's in, because it does, it impacts depression, like it impacts mood. There's all this great information right. out now. And we get to go, okay, great. We can deal with these parts. But, um, you know, you'll need a like... I don't know, gastroenterologist or a functional medicine doctor or somebody else. We don't do that part. Like you cannot. And I think that's also the tough thing about being a primary care physician. Aren't you sort of in charge of the whole body, right? Like, are you supposed to know everything about everything? And it's really hard for people to accept. No, of course you have limitations. Of course you have a scope of practice. And then you're going to be referring to other experts when that you know, issue becomes outside of your scope of practice. And so just being able to be honest about that. Such awesome advice, Shelby. And, you know, I think there's a way to say those words too, because I have heard from patients about, you know, approaching their primary care doctor about say anxiety and being met with, I am not a mental health professional, but those words said with, I'm not a mental health professional. So the inflection and the way those words are said is so, so important. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, adding, and I always try to do this. I mean, honesty, yes, but, you know, being willing to be a little bit vulnerable, a little bit self-deprecating, like Mm -hmm. I know a lot, but this is not (laughs) my best, you know? Mm -hmm. I think that is really important for healthcare providers listening to like say the words, but, you know, be really mindful about how you say them and how they may be perceived. Shelby, it really you are is like, godsend. But I was just going to say, it's like, it's what are the four sentences before you say, I'm not a mental yeah. health professional, right? <laughs> right. It's like, if, if you're just going like, oh, I'm not a mental health professional, then it feels awful. But if you say, tell me more about the anxiety you're feeling, tell me more about your symptoms, right? Let, let's talk about what we can do with that. And now I'm going to tell you that like, I feel a little out of my depth at this point, you know, that Mm -hmm. I'm not a mental health professional and I would love for you to go meet with somebody that feels so different, right? Like it's not just, it's, it's like, I care about you and I want you to have the best care. Right. Oh, that's such a good point. Right. So, cause those don't need to be the first words you say, regardless of how you say them, you know, like, (laughs) yeah. Oh my God. That's great. Cause I know, I know we have done that and, you know, there's, you walk in the room and it's supposed to be a thing and then it's not that thing. It's a totally different thing. And you're like, oh, but there's a way to handle that situation much more gracefully. You're amazing. Your practice is amazing. I am going to take this opportunity to shout from the rooftops to anyone listening that therapy works. 
period to doctors that are skeptics, rethink that. And to patients that are hesitant, rethink that. I think there's a place for medicine, but there is absolutely a place for therapy. I cannot say that loudly enough. And very specifically, plug for Shelby Riley here and her practice because they are really, really awesome for anybody local listening. Shelby, thank you so much for your time. I would love to have you back because honestly, I feel like I could talk to you for 11 hours about all kinds of stuff. Yes. And, and since you won't be my therapist because you are my friend, <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to just have to milk this opportunity to have more conversations with you. I thank- would love that. I would love it. <laughs> All right. Thank you all for listening to this really special episode of Tell Me More. If you have a story about a terrible or say great medical conversation, please email me christine at christinemeyermd.com. I can't wait for you to tell me more. Thank you so much for listening. Are you ready to join our conversation? Just go to Facebook and search Christine Meyer MD. Follow us to join 14,000 other people committed to creating better conversations in healthcare. 